A few years ago, I was talking with a young man, and we were having a conversation about what he was going to do after he graduated college. And this guy was a straight-A student, 4.0 GPA through college. He had the resume. He had been involved on campus. He had been accepted into medical school, and he was dreaming of becoming a doctor. And he was sitting in my office, and he was saying, you know, but during college, he had become a Christian. He grew as a mature follower of Jesus. We baptized him uh, in our church. God was using him to minister to his peers. He had become a leader in the college ministry that he was a part of, that I was leading at the time, and he was about to graduate. And he was thinking about his future, and he was sitting in my office, and he said, Will, I love medicine, and I would love to be a doctor one day. But then he said, But I really want to be used by God. (laughs) And he was asking me if he should be a pastor instead. I love medicine, I want to be a doctor, but I really want to be used by God. Does that mean I need to be a pastor instead? See, he wanted to give his life to God. But in his mind, the only people that could really make a difference in the kingdom of God were pastors and missionaries. And I'm sure he was thinking to himself, yeah, doctors do some good things. And, you know, maybe he was thinking I could be a medical missionary in a faraway country or something. Or at best, you know, maybe, hey, I could just make a lot of money as a doctor and I could give it to the church or something. See, he did not see medicine in itself as a spiritual vocation or an act of worship to God. He saw it as just a job. But he saw pastors and missionaries as doing the work of God. See, this is what is often called the sacred-secular divide. It's common thinking among many Christians, and it is a lie that too many people believe. And it says that it's this belief that being a pastor or working for a church is a sacred task. But everything else is just secular. It's just a job. There's no real spiritual value to it. That's the sacred-secular divide. And this morning, I hope to break down that divide and show you that your work matters to God and that God matters to your work. See, this is a question of great importance. Does God matter to my work? It's important because if you do the math, you will spend one-third of your waking life at work Most of us will spend 100,000 hours at our jobs in our lifetime. And that's not counting our commute. Lord help us, right? Amen? And other work-related activities. I mean, we're going to be spending a huge portion of our life, as much time at work as likely that we'll be spending with our kids in our lifetime. And so the question we have to ask is, if Jesus is Lord of all, and He is, Does this portion of our lives have any relationship to our faith? If Jesus is Lord of all, is He Lord over this third of my life? And so many of us think, yeah, I worship on Sunday and God is present in this room, but what about Monday? What about in my office? Is God there? And does my faith in Him matter there? And I believe our text this morning, Colossians chapter 3, will help us see that the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Monday matters. Monday is sacred. And God is there and God matters on Monday. Look at what it says, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything 
everything. Those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. The book of Colossians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in the city of Colossae. And he wrote the letter to a very specific people, but he wrote it for a very specific reason. And the reason is that Paul was, he wrote this letter because he was addressing a false teaching that had become popular and was influencing the church here in this city. And the false teaching was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism with a G. G-N-O. Gnosticism thought, or it taught that, this is what Gnosticism was. It taught that God is good, yes, and all that is spiritual is good. So the soul is good, but whatever is material or physical is evil. So spiritual, soul, good, body, physical, bad, or at best, neutral. And so the Gnostic practice was that in order to really experience God, you needed to rid yourself of all material things You needed to focus only on the spiritual so that you can really experience God. So spiritual good, physical, neutral, or bad. And so what this meant, as Gnosticism rose up within the church, that meant that this idea that Jesus is Lord over all things really took a weird shape. Because now if Gnosticism is true, if, if the spiritual is what really matters, then anything pertaining to sexuality anything pertaining to entertainment or even recreation or public life or even work really doesn't matter to your faith. See, and in order to really experience God, those things needed to be shed in order to really experience what God has for you. And when it comes to work, you know, the people in, the, in Colossae, they thought, yeah, the Gnostics would teach, yeah, you need to have a paycheck, so you need to go to your job, but it has nothing to do with your spiritual life. Do your work, get paid, so that you can focus then on the real important spiritual stuff. And we're so guilty of this today, aren't we? The young man in my office who says, I really want to be a doctor, but I really want to be used by God. As if you can't be those two things. Or think about this, in our society, we're often told as Christians, that's great that you have your faith, but keep it private. Don't bring your faith into the public realm. Don't bring your faith into your workplace. Don't bring your faith into your relationships with your family. Have your faith. It's private. Just do your thing privately. But when you're around other people, your faith doesn't matter anymore. That is sacred secular. You have this personal sacred thing going on over here, but when you're with everyone else, you've got to shed that. And Paul writes the book of Colossians, the letter of Colossians to say, no, this is wrong. In chapter 1, he says, Jesus is Lord over everything. He says, for by him all things were created, all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers of authority, all things, what things? All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And so if Jesus is Lord of all and everything was created for him, by him, through him, and to him, Then he is Lord over your work, and your work then is to be an act of worship to God. To walk in the way of Jesus means that you must consider how your faith integrates with your work, with your vocation. 
What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord over your nine to five? We've got to know, we've got to answer this question. Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And what the Bible is very clear that there is a way to eat, there's a way to drink, and there is a way to go to your job that brings glory to God. And as Christians, we need to consider what that is. And to be a Christian, by definition, is to be a follower of Christ. And if we want to be like Jesus, that's the goal of our faith, right? Then we want to be like Jesus, we look to Jesus. So we consider then, what was Jesus' life like? Jesus spent the majority, vast majority of his life, not as a minister, not as a prophet, but as a carpenter. Jesus spent 30 years out of supposedly 33 years as a carpenter. See, Jesus was a blue-collar guy. He worked with his hands. He knew what it was like to grind it out. He knew what it was like to punch the clock. Jesus knew the struggle. Jesus was a carpenter. Now let me ask you this question. Have you ever thought about what a table made by Jesus would have been like? Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever imagined what it would have been like to be a consumer, a client of Jesus's, for Jesus himself to sell you a chair? Do you think he would have charged an unfair price? Do you think Jesus would have used poor quality materials? Do you think Jesus would have used manipulative sales techniques? What about employees? If Jesus had somebody working for him, do you think they would have been paid a fair wage? What do you think that work environment, that work culture would have been like? See, Jesus worked a normal job. He was a carpenter. And you can bet that he did it in a way that brought glory to his father. And so we've got to ask whether you, you've got to ask whether you're an Uber driver or a hedge fund manager or a fashion designer or a plumber or a school teacher or a college student, a musician or a stay-at-home parent, a police officer or a bodega owner. You've got to ask the question, how do I honor God with my work? How do I honor God with my work? Or if Jesus were me, how would he do my job? And before we can talk about work as an act of worship and faithfulness to God, we first got to consider the unhealthy ways in which we often view our jobs and our vocations. And there are two unhealthy ways that we often do this. And I'm taking this from my friend Rich Velotis, who's a pastor in Queens. And he says that there are two unhealthy, unspiritual ways we look at our work. Some people demonize their work, meaning that you view your work with dread. You view your work as part of the curse, part of the fall. But here's the thing. God gave Adam a command to work the ground and keep it before sin entered the garden. Work existed before the fall. Work is not a result of the fall. Work, in fact, is the first commandment that God gave us. Cultivate. Create. Work a job. Name the animals and cultivate a garden. The first job in the history of the world God gave Adam was to be a gardener and a zookeeper. I say that tongue-in-cheek. But many people say, oh no, work is part of the, 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 the curse. I, it's something I dread, I sweat, it hurts, it's not fun. It's just something I've got to do to pay the bills. It's a necessary evil. And you may look at your work like this. You think, you know what, my work doesn't provide any sort of meaning to my life. It's merely something I've got to endure. 
And your work, maybe if you demonize your work, it's maybe because you work in a job that isn't very fulfilling. And I understand that many of you are in those situations. And so you treat your work as a necessary evil rather than something that God has placed you in for His glory. It's an act of survival. And you, you think to yourself, if you're trying to be spiritual, you may think, I do my job so that I can get paid so that then I can do the things that really matter to God. You view your work as an obstacle to God. So some of us demonize our work, but others of you divinize your work. Meaning that your work has become your primary identity in your life. In your mind, you are what you do and you are what you earn. And for you, it may be that your work is extremely fulfilling. You love your job. And so you run the temptation of making your work the most primary thing about you. And it gets all of your attention, all of your time, all of your excitement, all of everything. And you have inordinately placed your work as the most important thing about your identity. So in what ends up happening is you think of yourself more as an engineer or a teacher or a musician than you do as a child of the king. And your work has become an obstacle to you worshiping because you're worshiping your work more than you're worshiping God. And work is neither an obstacle to worship nor is it the place where we are to secure our identity and meaning. So we need, you need, we all need a healthy theology of work. And what you need to know today is that your work matters to God and that God matters to your work. And so the question then is, how should a Christian approach work? How should a Christian approach work? First thing you need to know is that you work ultimately for God. God is your employer. In verse 22, it says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. This means, this text means that one of the ways that you honor God first is by honoring your employer. In this passage, Paul is speaking to bondservants. Other translations might say slaves, and that makes us bristle a little bit. But in this context, slaves isn't quite the same thing that we think about. Slaves were free people. Slaves were often educated in this time. They were free to have a family, and they weren't distinguished by race or outward appearance. And they were rarely slaves for life. It was something you would work your way out of. But nevertheless, even though it's not what we think of when we think of chattel slavery, Nevertheless, it wasn't an easy job. I mean, these were slaves. And Paul says, obey your earthly masters, obey your employers. And Paul says, listen, you may have a horrible, horrible, horrible boss. Anybody got an amen there? I'm glad Kyle's not in here, okay? <laughs> you may have a horrible boss. You may be in a situation or a role or a profession that you hate. Maybe you're in a job that you're way overqualified for and you're tempted to think that you're above the requests of your manager or your employer. And Paul says, obey your employer as if you're working for God himself. And you say, well, you know what? Paul doesn't understand my situation. He doesn't know my boss. My boss is an idiot, you know? That's what you might think. And Paul would say, I don't care if your boss is Michael Scott, okay? You honor him or her as you honor God. You honor your boss as you honor God. So that's one aspect of what it means to work as if you're working for God. Secondly, because as a Christian you are working ultimately for the Lord, you must work hard. And you must work ethically. And you must work for the good of others. You may be in a job, and I know that some of you are in jobs where you feel like no one notices you. 
No one recognizes you. No one respects you. So you question, why should I give my company all I have? Why should I give my boss all I have? They don't respect me. And maybe you're tempted to cut corners to get noticed or you're tempted to be lazy. And Paul says, no one else may see you, but God does. So work knowing that He is watching you. Proverbs 11.1 says, a false balance or dishonest scales or fudging the balance sheet or stealing office supplies or clocking out early. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight... Doing the right thing is his delight. We work ethically as followers of Jesus. And while you are called to honor your employer, you got to know that if your employer asks you to do anything that is unethical or illegal or goes against your religious convictions, your service to God in that moment now trumps your service for your employer. What that means is that there are some jobs that are off limits to faithful Christians. Okay? (laughs) Pimps, drug dealers... Pyramid schemes, Ponzi schemes that benefit those at the top but crush those at the bottom, those aren't, maybe aren't things that Christians should consider being a part of. And there are times that in your jobs you may have to obey your God-given conscience when something doesn't square with your convictions. There's a person in our church that left their job a while back because they became aware of the harsh impact that their industry had on the environment. And for this person, they could not align the realities of their job with their personal and theological convictions, so they left their job and started a new career because their theological convictions got in the way of what they thought it meant to work ethically for the Lord. Other people, I remember teaching on the Sabbath one time that God commands us to rest. And I had somebody from the church say to me, they said, if I took a day off, I would lose my job. They said, if I rested or if I only worked 50 hours this week instead of 70, I would lose my job because there's somebody underneath me that would cut my throat to get my job if I took a break at all. And they said, what do I do? The Bible commands me to Sabbath. And I didn't tell them to quit their job. That's beyond my my role, right? But maybe ask the question, if my job does not allow me to honor the commandment of Sabbath, maybe this isn't a job that honors the Lord. We work ethically. We obey the scriptures as we work because we are ultimately working for God, not our earthly master, though we do honor our employers as we're honoring God. But you also, because you work for God, you've got to work well. You do your job with excellence. Martin Luther, the reformer one time, had somebody, a similar conversation like I had, somebody who came to faith in Christ and they were just, they were spiritually just revived. And they said, Martin, uh, you know, Dr. Luther, I really want to be, I want to, uh, Give my life for the service of God, but I'm just a shoe cobbler. What should I do? And Martin Luther said, you should make a really good shoe and sell it for a fair price. That's what it means to honor God as a shoe cobbler. See, you may hate your job and it may seem boring or insignificant, but you are called by God to do it with excellence because God demands it from you. Martin Luther King Jr., a different Martin Luther. Martin Luther King Jr. said, I love this. This is so beautiful. If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep those streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. Isn't that good? We work for God. Second thing you need to know is that your work is meaningful. 
no matter what your job is. You think your work is insignificant. You think your work nobody cares about, but your work is meaningful. And it's meaningful because you are made in the image of God. And when you work and when you create and when you cultivate, you are imaging, imitating God. You're making something out of nothing. You're bringing order out of chaos. You're being like God. And you may think that your work is so small and menial and doesn't make a difference, but it is making a difference. Martin Luther, the reformer, back again to the first Luther, he preached a sermon that I read on Psalm 147. I thought this was fascinating. And the psalm says, For he strengthens, for God strengthens the bars of the gates. God blesses your children within you. He makes peace within your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. And Luther asked the question, he said, well, how exactly does God do these things? How does God strengthen the bars of the city? By city planners and architects and politicians who pass laws to protect the city. How does God bless the children in our midst? Through teachers and pediatricians and stay-at-home parents. And yes, that is a job. And school bus drivers and on and on and on. How does God make peace in our borders by means of good lawyers and policemen and firemen and military? How does God fill us with the finest of wheat by farmers, factory workers, restaurant owners, grocers, and truck drivers? Luther said that our professions are like masks that God wears as he cares for the world. And you may say, well, nobody sees what I do. I work hard, I work ethically, but nobody sees me. Nobody pays attention to me. And no one really benefits from what I do. You may say that. But I'm here to tell you, God sees you. And you think, oh, well, that's cheesy. Oh, God sees me. I get it. But think about this. Think about all the things that God sees that no one else sees. Think about the Mariana Trench, the lowest point in the ocean. No human has ever laid eyes upon some of the creatures that are in the Mariana Trench. There are fish and there are creatures and there are coral reefs that no human has ever seen. They exist only for God's enjoyment. There are caves that no human has ever explored. And deep within those caves are creatures and crystals that no one has ever seen but God. Think that before certain continents were discovered, there were flowers and mountains and trees and lakes and rivers and beaches that no one in the world had seen but God. Did you know that the mountain gorilla wasn't discovered until 1902. That meant that for centuries and millennia, there was a huge primate that nobody had ever seen but God. Nobody had ever seen but God. It's as if all these things just existed merely for God's enjoyment or pleasure. We look at flowers and we think they're beautiful. There's probably some flower out there that no human has ever seen and God's looking at it going, that's beautiful. He's the only one who enjoys it, but he enjoys it. I saw an author this week in like a blog. It was kind of joking, but I thought it was funny. They said, I kind of hope, this is a theologian, said, I kind of hope that Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster actually exists because that would mean that there's a creature out there that God is enjoying all on his own. And that means that he created it merely for his enjoyment. You know what God said to Job? He said, have you, Job, entered the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? You say, no one notices my work. No one sees the hard work I do, the excellence I do, but God sees it and He recognizes it. 
And whatever it is, even if no one else sees it, you are to do it in such a way, like Luther said, that all the hosts of heaven look on you and say, there lives a great street sweeper. Or there lives a great beautician or barber. Consider the work of a janitor. This is an often thankless job. People don't thank the janitors. They don't think of janitors. But could you imagine the chaos that would happen if a company didn't have a janitor? Think about the impression that it would make like when clients walked in, they're thinking of partnering with this company and they walk in and the place is a mess. The client would say, I'm not, this place is a mess. I'm, not, I'm taking my business elsewhere. Imagine about how unsafe a factory would be if there was no janitor to clean up at the end of the day. Think about restaurants, all the restaurants that would fail their health inspections and get shut down by the city if there was no janitor. See, a janitor is often a thankless, unrecognized job, but a janitor is crucial to the mission of a company. In 1962, John F. Kennedy, JFK, visited the NASA Space Center, and they were giving him a tour. And during the tour, the president noticed a janitor carrying a broom over his shoulder, and the president walked over to the man and said, Hi, I'm Jack Kennedy. What are you doing today? And he said, Well, Mr. President, I'm helping put a man on the moon. See, he understood that his role was just as important to the mission of the company than anybody else's. See, your work is meaningful, even if it's not recognized by others. It's recognized by God. And as you do your work, you're imaging, you're imitating God. And here's what I mean by that. I used to work as a painter. When Rebecca and I first got married, I was a painter. That's what I did for a living. And you're thinking like, oh, that's cool. You're an artist. No, not, not an artist. Not the cool kind. Um, I, was, I painted apartments. I partnered with all these apartment complexes. And it was, I hated that job. I hated it. I worked in it for a few years and I hated it. I would wake up early every morning and just dread going to work. And what I would do is I would walk into apartment, build, apartment units that people had just moved out of. And I became keenly aware of just how disgusting some people are. Because they move out of the apartment and I move in. The day they move out, I would move in and paint the, the walls. And I would be the first one to see all the mess that was on the carpet. I was the first one to see the yellow walls from all the cigarette stained walls. Or I was able to see like whatever stains were on their wall. I mean, it was bad. And I had to get in the corner and paint the trim down in the bathroom. And I had to get behind all the, the I mean, nooks and crannies. And I had to, I mean, all of that. I hated that job. I hated it. But when I, now when I look back on it, I think about, go, what was I doing in that job? What was I doing? I was walking into an apartment complex that was filthy. I was walking into an apartment building that was, or a, room, a unit that was disgusting and filthy. It had stains all over it. And I would walk in, and the first thing I would do, I would take my bucket of supplies, I would put them down, and I would get primer and start covering up the stains. And then when the primer had dried and the stains were covered, I would then take white paint and I would cover those stains and make them white and brand new again. And when I left, when I would stand at the door before I locked up, I would look and what looked disgusting and stained and nasty and dirty now looked white as snow and it looked brand new. And when I think of what God has done in my life, He looked into my life and He saw a dirty, sinful man but he covered up my stains, and then with his blood, he washed me, and now I'm white as snow. And I thought it was a meaningless, thankless job that no one recognized or no one noticed. 
But don't you see, I was imaging God. And while no one else saw that, he saw that. And it made him smile. My sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. I was imaging God. And if you're an accountant, you do those tax returns as if you're doing Jesus' tax returns. If you're a parent changing diapers, just remember that that's God's child that you're changing. If you're a barber or you're a hairstylist, that is Jesus' hair that you're giving a shape up. That's Jesus' hair that you're... Work as if you're cutting Jesus' hair. If you're a used car salesman, you sell, sell cars as if you were selling them to Jesus. If you're an Uber driver, you drive your car as if you're transporting Jesus. If you're a trash man, you, it's, you work as if that's Jesus' street you're cleaning. Your work is meaningful. And then finally, your work is for the sake of the world. See, I hope I've persuaded you that your work matters in and of itself and that God matters to your work. You don't have to be a pastor to be spiritually, for your life to be spiritually meaningful. And many people often think, well, if I want to be spiritual in my work, I've got to do a Bible study in my work. I've got to put my Bible on my desk so people see it. Or I've just got to be the guy who talks about Jesus all the time. You need to know that your work in and of itself is an act of worship. You don't have to be, you don't have to add some extra layer of spirituality to make it spiritual. It already is spiritual. Your work matters to God and God matters to your work. But the reality is that your work is also an opportunity to make disciples of Jesus. It's a place and a platform that God has given you to leverage your faith for the good of others. See, your work gives you and your workplace gives you a credible way to demonstrate God's love to your coworkers and to your clients and to your consumers. And often there are rules and stipulations in place. I get it. You can't like bring a microphone and start preaching a sermon at your workplace. I wouldn't expect you to. You'd lose your job. But there will be opportunities where you will be able to speak life into the people you come in contact with. And here's the reality. As a pastor, I don't get many of those opportunities. Because I spend most of my day with church people. And then when I meet people who aren't Christians, they're hanging out. we got a good thing going. A friendship is forming. And then they say, so what do you do for a living? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I lead a nonprofit, you know. <laughs> I'm like, I'm a pastor. The relationship shuts down. People get weird around pastors. People don't get weird around accountants. People don't get weird around musicians. So you have opportunities with people that I never have. And so you have an opportunity to know and spend time with regular people who don't know Jesus in a way that isn't always available to pastors like me. Billy Graham said that the next, he was asked, one of his final interviews, he's still alive, but I don't think he does very many interviews, but in a recent interview he was asked, what is, spiritual revi- what is the next spiritual awakening going to look like? And he said the next great spiritual awakening will not happen in church services or evangelistic rallies the next great spiritual awakening will happen in workplaces as Christians live out their callings as faithful followers of Jesus. See, God has a way of using ordinary people in ordinary jobs to fulfill his purposes in the world. Now back to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul who wrote this text, he's one of the greatest missionaries in history. He's the greatest missionary in the scriptures. 
Paul goes and he travels. This was Paul's life. He traveled the whole world, the whole known world. And he would preach the good news of Jesus. And I'm, I mean, when you think about it, I suspect that there are billions of Christians throughout history that can trace their salvation back to Paul in some way. So my parents led me to Christ, and then their, their parents led them to Christ, and this person, this person, this person. Billions of people will probably be able in heaven to trace their salvation back to Paul. Paul was the greatest missionary to ever live. But throughout his missionary, there was, his ministry, there was one thing that just frustrated him so bad. And that was that he wanted to get to Rome. He wanted so badly to get to Rome because he saw Rome as the most influential city in the world. And in his mind, he was convinced that, nobody, that the name of Jesus had never been preached there. And he was like, I've got to get to Rome. I've got to get to Rome. I've got to get and preach the gospel to Rome where it's never been preached before. And in Acts 28, the scriptures record Paul finally arriving to Acts after a lifetime of trying. <laughs> he spent a three-month journey at sea, probably got sick, probably was hungry, and it says he finally arrived in Rome. And you know what Acts 28, 14 says? There he found brothers. There were Christians already there. The gospel got to Rome faster through faithful Christian businessmen and women going along the trade routes than it did through the greatest missionary in history. It got there through regular people doing regular jobs, but they were proclaiming the name of Jesus as they went. See, those in business in that day had greater access to the trade routes and resources to Rome than Paul did. They got there faster. They ran their businesses for the glory of God. They proclaimed the name of Jesus along the way, and people started to believe. And here's what this means, that if we want to see spiritual revival in New York, and I want to see spiritual revival in New York, it will not happen because of pastors like me preaching sermons only. It will happen because of you. Financiers, artists, waitresses, stay-at-home parents, HR managers, educators, athletes, military men and women, fashion designers, coders, engineers, doctors, social workers, cab drivers, MTA employees... A movement of God will happen not through pastors and missionaries and worship leaders, but through you all seeing your work as a place of worship and using your spheres of influence that God has given you to show and speak the glory of Jesus. To show and speak of the one who lived and died in our place. The one who has promised that all who would believe in him would receive his forgiveness and inherit eternal life. It is his message Jesus' message of grace and forgiveness that we proclaim through our lives and through our work and with our mouths. Jesus is worthy of our best because he gave us everything he had. And so today, our prayer is going to be a bit different than normal. Normally, we just pray and have communion. Today, I want to do something a little bit different. I want to take some time to pray for you and commission you as ministers of Jesus' grace into your workplace. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to name some industries and professions. And when I call out your industry or profession, if you would stand. And the rest of the church, we're going to speak a blessing over you. We're going to say, your work matters to God. God matters to your work. May the Spirit lead you. And then I'm going to pray for all of us. So, if you are, we'll start with James. If you are in the arts, theater, movies, painters, writers, musicians, if you would stand. Your work matters to God, and God matters to your work. 
May the Spirit be with you. You can have a seat. If you're in business or management or accountant, finance, engineer, sales, advertising, if you would stand. Church with me. Your work matters to God and God matters to your work. May the Spirit lead you. You guys can have a seat. If you're in construction or trade, if you're a builder or a carpenter or electrician, etc. None. If you're in education, teachers, administrators, tutors, support staff, security staff, if you would stand. Church, your work matters to God and God matters to your work. May the Spirit lead you. If you're in government, if you're a city worker, sanitation, policeman, fireman, firewoman, MTA, postal, administrative, or military, if you would stand. Church together. Your work matters to God, and God matters to your work. May the Spirit lead you. If you're in healthcare profession or medical, whether you're a dentist, an MD, a nurse, a pharmacist, a ther- the good kind of drug dealer, a therapist, whether you're in research or you're a medical student, if you would stand. Church, your work matters to God and God matters to your work. May the Spirit lead you. If you're in legal, whether you're a lawyer or public defender, paralegal or office staff, if you would stand. Okay. If you're parenting, if you're a stay-at-home parent, or if you're a parent at all, you work in the home, if you would stand. And we need to say this very loudly, church. Your work matters to God, and God matters to your work. May the Spirit lead you. If you're retired, if you'll stand. Your work matters to God, and God matters to your work. May the Spirit lead you. If you're in service or retail, concierge, waiters, food, restaurant service, custodian, beautician, barber, if you would stand. Your work matters to God, and God matters to your work. May the Spirit lead you. If you're in social services, whether you're a counselor or a social worker, you work for a nonprofit, if you would stand. Your work matters to God, and God matters to your work. May the Spirit lead you. If you're a student, junior high, high school, college, graduate school, postgraduate school, anyone. Downstairs as well. Your work matters to God, and God matters to your work. May the Spirit lead you. If you're in a transition, if you're between careers or you're in disability, if you would stand. Hilton, your work matters to God, and God matters to your work. May the Spirit bless you, brother. If you work for a church or Christian nonprofit, if you would stand. Your work matters to God. And God matters to your work. May the Spirit lead you. And if I didn't name your profession, other, would you stand? Just remember, church, your work matters to God. And God matters to your work. And may the Spirit lead us all. Let me pray for us.